This is obviously an event with pretty profound political implications, but it's also a story about a person who had a serious mental health crisis, and that's meant that politicians and the media have had to navigate a relatively difficult tightrope on this one, trying to make political hay in the case of the politicians or talk about the political ramifications of this in the case of the media, while not punching out at someone who is clearly in a vulnerable state. And I, I would suggest some have navigated that tightrope more deftly than others. Yeah, I, and first off, before I talk about that, I mean, I do think there has been a heartening and pretty widespread acceptance that this was a person who experienced, in Green Party leader James Shaw's words, a moment of acute distress, and that it wouldn't be appropriate to put the boot into her personally. But that didn't stop... All speculation and granular reporting on the circumstances surrounding her crash arrest and subsequent resignation. We had stuff in particular. It was criticised after publishing a story on Tuesday noting that Ellen had crashed outside the home of a senior Justice Ministry official. Now... That invites speculation, of course. Could this be related to the allegations that Ellen has mistreated uh, staff? It was some kind of vendetta. What's going on here? As it turns out, absolutely nothing is going on here. The story notes about six paragraphs in that it was all a coincidence and Ellen had never met the official. And if I was being unkind, which of course I'm not, I would probably say that if you crash a car in Wellington and it's not outside the uh, house of a senior public servant, then that would be more unusual. Mm-hmm. Of course, this sort of coverage is also it's been blamed in part for what has happened to, to Ellen. Yeah, she has been the subject of pretty intense scrutiny over the last few months, and that's par for the course in politics. Everyone is under scrutiny, but it's particularly tough given she's had these well-publicised mental health issues. She's recently recovered from very serious cancer and she's only just gone through a breakup so that's a lot of stuff and stuff's editorial cartoonist Sharon Murdoch highlighted that she drew a picture of Ellen standing under two two huge magnifying glasses and she has flames coming off the top of her head and the implication being there that the intense scrutiny that uh, politicians and her in particular are under these days has contributed to her downfall and that's been acknowledged pretty widely including by Barry Soper who's not uh, of the left who said uh, politicians are in more of a goldfish bowl than ever the former Green MP Elizabeth Kedikedi argued the pressure is even more pronounced for Wahini Māori and Takatapui MPs noting that four Māori Takatapui MPs have resigned in the last year now Uh, That's true, but this has had a profound effect on politicians of other demographics as well, most notably former national leader Todd Muller, who started having anxiety attacks a few weeks into his role. I mean, much has been made about Parliament's toxic culture after this incident, but there's probably also a case that our current media and our social media environment is becoming an impediment to people becoming politicians. You're not just under scrutiny in the House, you're under scrutiny all the time. Mm. And, you know, that's particularly acute if you're among the 80% of people who experience a mental health challenge at some point in your life. Mm. Well, other pundits also concentrated, focused on Alan's return to work after what was a relatively short period of mental health leave. Yeah, and before I... Talk about that, it's worth noting that at least one commentator refused to weigh in on this, and Morgan Godfrey, 
said he wasn't taking calls for commentary, adding there's no speculation, retrospectives or forecasts to be had on what is to any reasonable person an intensely private matter deserving of sympathy, not interrogation. Others clearly disagreed. You had uh, the pundit Bryce Edwards taking aim at Chris Hipkins for allowing Alan to resume those ministerial responsibilities, as he thought, too soon, saying, uh, quote, the very short period of time that Alan took off the job clearly wasn't enough to deal with her mental health challenges. Now, he wasn't alone in saying Ellen came back too early. Uh, some of her allies did too. Mana Motohake uh, leader Sandra Lee Verko said Ellen was overworked and overloaded. Uh, but are we able to say that with, with such confidence? I mean, mental health challenges like this aren't linear uh, or easily attributable to, to particular causes. Yeah, it's not just like A plus B equals mm. mental health challenge, or it's not a formulaic thing like that. Uh, and, you, yeah, it's it's not easy. And that was what uh, the Mental Health Foundation's chief executive, Sean Robinson, said in a piece for the spin-off, that the picture is more complicated and that everyone will have times when they are not mentally and emotionally at their best. And what we need at those times will vary and actually... He makes a good point. Work can be a helpful anchor sometimes mm. when you're in those times. Green Party co-leader James Shaw actually made a similar point on RNZ's morning report. Do you think she came back too soon? Well, look, it's really not for me to judge, and frankly, I don't think it is for anybody else to judge either. Um, like I said, I think it is possible for people who are in a state uh, of distress like that to go for periods of time where they feel fine and, and to kind of make the assessment that actually, yep, I'm through that, you know, onto other things, and actually underline and underline. She said herself not, that she, she obviously in that's hindsight right. she and, was. And, you know, you, we've got to acknowledge that, you know, I mean, mental health is a big challenge in this country. And that's kind of a similar point that's been made around the traps. Audrey Young's one of them at Newsroom. Uh, Joe uh, Moyer, the political editor, said actually it seemed like Ellen was on top of her game just the week before. She had this incident. She delivered what uh, Moyer and Audrey Young called a masterclass 40-minute press conference on youth justice where she was calm, measured across her subject matter. So anyone seeing her there might have thought that she'd recovered sufficiently to go back to work. The reality seems to be that with mental health issues, things aren't easy to predict, and anyone selling you absolute certainty is probably not all that credible. Which didn't really stop some politicians from coming up with ideas on how to provide that uh, that certainty. Yeah, a bit of a weird one. National leader Chris Luxon came up with a suggestion, apparently on the fly, saying he would like to see assurance from a clinician that MPs are fit to return before allowing them back from mental health leave now. Kyle McDonald, the co-host of the Nutters Club on Newstalk ZB, said that was a terrible idea and it would dissuade politicians from actually divulging anything about their mental health, I guess for fear of actually not being allowed back. And the Mental Health Foundation Chief Executive Sean Robinson again in that piece for the spin-off said it wasn't a great idea, saying if clinical sign-off is applied uh, like that, then Parliament will be half empty half the time because politicians are human too. And he said the idea was a sad and ill-informed weaponising of Ms. Allen's distress for political gain. And that accusation there has been relatively common over the last few days. Well, it's worth noting that several national MPs have avoided being seen to be making any sort of political gain out of this. Yeah, obviously there have been those accusations of people making political hay. I'll note Mm. before that that some studiously avoided that. One of those was Judith Collins. She took the high road saying... 
people tend to forget politicians are human. There's a real divergence in approach here. Sam Uffendale, another on the Judith Collins path, the high road, I guess. Uh, he was quoted in a headline saying, politics is a blood sport, and that's probably less than ideal for someone with his history, but his full comments were uh, pretty broadly kind. Uh, it took a similar tack. He said he would prefer it if people didn't come on as heavy uh, when things go badly for folks in politics. Uh, mm. Transport spokesman, on the other hand, uh, Simeon Brown, on the other hand, said Ellen was responsible for her own actions and National is the party of personal responsibility. And David Seymour, now he was an interesting case. He sort of seemed to take, uh, well, a dollar each way, really, both paths. Yeah, he he did sympathy one day, and then, <laughs> and then the next day he was very severely criticised for calling an urgent debate in Parliament on the topic of Kitty Allen's uh, resignation. And during his speech in that debate, he was censured twice by the Speaker for going off topic. And that prompted a sharp rebuke from some of our political reporters, including News Hub's Lloyd Burr, who asked, why on earth did he think it was a good idea to capitalise on Ellen's downfall, capitalise on her mental health challenges, and capitalise on what is a public tragic and sad fall from grace? Newsroom's Joe Moyer again ad- adopted a similar line, saying, the government is under enough pressure already of its own doing without opponents needing to insert themselves into the story, especially given its fraught backdrop with mental health and another person who took exception to the urgent debate was broadcasting minister willie jackson here's what he said on radio watia mental illness is right at the front of us and we can the whole country can see even if you don't like labor or grita you can see and if she goes and calls a urgent debate it should show people who are so enamored with seymour the worth of the bloke and, and the act party well, we've spoken a lot about the mental health aspect of all this, but it seems a lot of the commentary has actually centred on what this has done to Labour's election chances. Yeah, that's right. It yeah. seems like almost as much as the actual story we've been talking about uh, uh, what this is doing to the election. And among a certain segment of the commentariat, this incident is the death knell for Labour's election hopes. So on News Talk ZB, we had Kerry Woodham calling Labour a caretaker government, and she was interviewing News Talk's senior political uh, correspondent Barry Soper, who went as far as to say National should put a motion of no confidence and see if it can prompt a snap election. I think what National should now do because there must be many people on the Labour benches now that will know their fate is sealed uh, come the election. And it just takes one simple um, motion of no confidence in the government. I doubt whether you get Labour crossing the line, but if you did, uh, then it could uh, see a snap election. I'm really struggling to see the logic in that one, Mm -hmm. to be honest, Mark. I mean, if you've got people that think they're going to lose... Their jobs? Do they? Why do they want to lose them three months earlier? <laughs> what's the what's the what's the business proposition here? I mean, yeah. and I thought that a snap election would probably uh, require not just Labour MP support, but that of Te Pāti Māori and the Greens. Mm. I mean, it seems a bit of a weird one. Nevertheless, other commentators on the same network were similarly bullish about Nationals' chances. This is morning host Mike Hosking within ten minutes of the news of Alan's arrest breaking on ZB. How bad does it need to get? And are you more or slightly more reassured by my prediction that this is going to be little short of a landslide come October 14? 
Now that is Mike Hosking predicting uh, the, uh, an election landslide. Former National MP Tohenare said he had gone from predicting a hung parliament to forecasting a national win. It, it's been a it's been a rough and rocky ride for uh, Chris Hitkins since he took over, and um, and, and it just doesn't look good. Um, and look, look, a week ago I was still under the belief that. It would be very, very close. In fact, I was calling a hung parliament. This week, um, I don't think so. Bryce Edwards as well, predicting a turnaround in the electoral calculus on Morning Report. Well, the odds of Labour being re-elected have just you know, plummeted really today. And I think we may look back at this being the turning point where a lot of swing voters who were considering voting Labour will now go, nah, it's a shambles. And you know, when you hear the Prime Minister today saying that uh, he doesn't, didn't believe that Kerry Allen was in a fit state to hold a ministerial warrant, there'll be a number of people going, oh, um, I'm not sure that Labour's fit to govern at the moment. But other commentators weren't quite so sure though, were they? No, the aforementioned Joe Moyer said this might cost Labour the election in the end, but it's impossible to know. There's a lot of water to go under the bridge, a lot of scandals and gaffes still to come, and of course Labour's not the only party that is vulnerable to those. So anything could happen. RNZ's Deputy Political Editor Craig McCulloch argued the same, and on 9 to noon, political commentators Liam Hare from the right and Neil Jones from the left both argued other issues may come to define the election in three months' time. Every election is different, but I think the key point is there is still 90 days to go and there are many factors that do decide elections. And, I, and, and it's very easy in commentary to say this one thing is the end. Actually, there are you know there is a long way to go still. Now that's Neil Jones, but actually Liam here made a similar point saying in three months' time, voters will be considering a range of factors, not just this one. So which camp do you sit in? Now... Want to acknowledge out front that this might all be a bit tawdry. We're talking about the electoral uh, implications of someone's mental health crisis. It's a bit, um, yeah. a bit off. But I, I think I'd be more on the side of people who'd say it's too early to make any firm predictions, and that's partly look. Political commentators have about as good a track record as economists when it comes to making long-term predictions, and that's to say that they're almost never right. They're wrong all the time. They're awful at it. I mean, just think back to the excitement around Judith Collins being elected leader of National in 2020. Journalists said, oh, this is the gloves are off now. We've got an electoral race on our hands. It's going to be a tough battle, and of course we know how that turned out. Uh, with a historic MNP election loss for National under Judith Collins. So why, why do you think the predictions are off so often? Now, I have no proof of this, but this is something, it's kind of been a bugbear of mine for a, a little while, this one, and so I'm going to kind of, you know, what is it, shoehorn it into here. Mm. But I think that political, co- and look, I might be being, a, I've got a lot of provisos here, Matt, but I feel like I might be being a bit of a hypocrite here because I'm making a, an, a, an argument with no data here as well, yeah. just like the commentators do. But I think that maybe we can overreact in commentary, as Neil Jones said, to individual events and think uh, mm. they're going to be the thing that defines the agenda when really they're stuff that often passes relatively quickly and people's lives are so busy they don't remember them. I mean, mm. can you remember the details of the Oravida scandal? Vaguely. What about the Husband Saudi... The Saudi Collins, yes, yeah, the yeah. Saudi sheep deal. I mean... Yeah. Oh, that was Murray McCulloch. Yeah, you got Murray yeah. It's not. But, it's yeah. not easy. I'm, you know, these were big scandals at the time, and it's yes. not necessarily 
um, something that well, I think we can overreg their significance. Yeah. And I think political reporters in particular are far more plugged into the news than your average member of the public. I think there's been an analogy made by one of our commentators, might be John Rowan, mm. that they're like people sitting too close to the screen. In a they're in the theater. bubble, aren't they? They're they, in that beehive. They can only see the pixels. They can't see the wider, you know. Yeah. And perhaps they, they project their own hyper-focused uh, experience onto the electorate when the electorate is actually strange and indecipherable. I saw something from the Green MP for Dunedin recently, uh, Fran... Uh, Green MP, Green candidate for Dunedin recently, Fran Hernandez, who said uh, he's, he goes out door knocking and finds people that say that they're going to give their candidate vote to him and their party vote to ACT. So, you know, people are stranger than you think. <laughs> and, and that's not to say the odds are in Labour's uh, favour. It's not looking good for them at all. But the, the commentary class, I think, probably shouldn't be handing over the keys to the ninth floor of the Beehive to National just yet. Right. Moving on. So you wanted to add some commentary about the coverage of the ongoing and the tragic Lauren Dickerson trial in Christchurch. There's been a, a bit of pushback from journalists to the criticism that their reporting has been too lurid. Yeah, Colin talked last week about some of the criticism the media mm. has received over its coverage of this trial. And there's been a bit of pushback against that by part of the media this week, which I thought was worth noting. So this is just an example of it on Newsroom's Raw Politics podcast. This is political reporter Emma Hatton uh, recommending people read the trial coverage. And here she is explaining that recommendation. Why I'm saying um, that it's a recommendation for me, is that yes, the details of this crime are horrid and they're gruesome and they're sickening. Um, but we need to know about this crime and we need to know the details of this crime because we need to know more about our mental health services in this country and we need to know specifically more about our maternal mental health services rather. Now the stuff journalist Philip Matthews made a similar point. He said... Unpopular opinion, perhaps, but I think the coverage of the trial in Christchurch has been very sober, and it's the crime itself that is horrendous, arguably the worst imaginable, but we can't shy away from covering it. On The Detail, the newsroom podcast, the Detail Media Freedom Committee Chair Richard Sutherland said that while editorial decision-making can be nuanced about these things, he agreed with the general principle that anything said in open court should be able to be reported. Do you have sympathy for that? I mean, I think there's an extent to which they're absolutely right here. There is no way to report this trial in a way that's not horrendous, that's not confronting, that's not sickening for some people. The details are horrific. Emma Haddon, she's a great journalist, and she's right. It's genuinely important to shine a light on the state of our maternal mental health system. But I do feel that some of these retorts feel... Like, they're taking apart a bit of a straw man. They're accusing their critics of not wanting any of those confronting details of the trial reported at all. And I think that's not exactly what the argument I've seen is. I've seen... Uh, I haven't seen anyone saying the media should ignore the trial. Instead, a criticism from David Farrier on Webworm, for instance, and others, they've more focused on the nature of the, the coverage. Mm. So in other words, that it seems unnecessarily too lurid. It's yeah. too much information. Detail. Even the too much information, I feel like it's more the presentation of the information yeah. and, and the vehicle in which it's presented. So it's, it's 
just to sum it up, it's not that people don't want the trial reported, it's that they want it reported respectfully. And some of the coverage, not all, has felt like it has fallen short of that. For instance, News Talk ZB going with the headline, three words Lauren Dickerson said to husband after killing their three girls. Kind of a clickbaity headline or stuff. Mm. Headlining a story, husband howling on the driveway, his head in his hands. You know, mm. a, a, a trial here, uh, I mean... Uh, Push notification from stuff live. Dickinson's Dickinson's face blank as husband learned of horror trial hears. Now, I might be off here, but I would even I would even question stuff decision to go with a live blog mm. as the vehicle for this coverage because I know that live blogs cover serious events and they cover sometimes life and death events, but this isn't a breaking news event, which is what these would normally be for. Where it needs minute to minute mm. updates like this. This is something that's grueling and heavy and requires difficult editorial decision making and as Colin said last week I mean who can't wait till the end of the day for those details I struggle to see a justification for it that's not at least partly about click maximization and this trial yeah how many I mean do you know how many clicks it is I know that it was at the top of the table for stuff on the first week it hasn't been lately it's sort of been more which will be their argument well people want to read this they wouldn't be delving in if they didn't and that's kind of the argument for everything but I think this is such a grave horrible topic that I think the argument for maximizing clicks really falls short because Mm. it's about being respectful and uh, you know this trial would be confronting no matter what but it seems a bit disrespectful seeing human tragedy packaged in a way that seems to maximise drama. But do, do journalists like Philip Matthews, um, do they have a point that the reporting itself has been, well, sober? Yeah, and I want to acknowledge some of the reporters. I think actually the writing itself, particularly from Annalise, I read some of her um, uh, very long features about it, Jake Kenny, others, uh, they, they have been pretty sober. I want to acknowledge outlets like TVNZ, which I know has made considered decisions on stuff like reporting the murder method and not reporting the murder method on its 6pm bulletin. But I think if we're really honest with ourselves, if we're really honest, mm. some of the way this was presented was about fronting that shock value, maximising the click, drawing mm. people in, and it adhered to the conventions that we see in our news sites every day because that's what we do. That's what we're incentivised to do. We, we try and draw people in. And there's, I think in this case, a, a case for changing those conventions because at the heart of this are these three children who died in the worst possible way at the hands of someone who was meant to protect them and I just uh, maybe it's my parent brain talking but they should be anonymous now they should be in preschool or school they sh- we shouldn't know their names and they shouldn't we they should they shouldn't be in the national news because but because of the manner of their death they yeah, are and I names think, are in every day yeah, yeah I mm-hmm. think there's an imperative because of that to cover this trial as conservatively and respectfully as possible to not use shock value as a selling tactic or to package the evidence under clickable headlines and there's something about covering it in that way that feels a bit disrespectful to those children or at worst at the very worst even potentially like leveraging their horrific deaths for advertising dollars and it seems that most media outlets understood that that is not worth it that making that decision to do that is not worth it and many of them made conservative judgments as a result but some could have made more conservative ones than others Mm. and having said that there's been a bit of a change in the tone of some of the comfort yeah i think that actually probably some outlets did take that on board this week and i think maybe it has been a bit more reserved Mm. subdued some of that stuff this week We've only got a minute and a half to go, and there was another topic you were going to 
talk about Jason. Oh, yeah. Okay, <laughs> we don't really have enough no, time to no. talk about it. But yes, uh, the newest member or a new member of RNZ's board, Jason Ake, resigned today. Another person that's fallen uh, victim to this habit of board members of speaking out about their personal beliefs. But mm. I mean, I do feel a little bit of concern uh, that we're going to have. Perhaps we're going too far with this expectation that people in these public board positions will never be able to speak out about anything. 